Chapter Eighteen of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Eighteen. Billy Trainer as Orator. Three weeks rolled over an interval not without its share of interest for the inhabitants of the little village of Linane, since on one morning Mr. Craggs had made his appearance on his way to Clifton, and after an absence of two days returned to the castle. The subject for popular discussion and surmise had not yet declined, when a boat was seen to leave Glencore, heavily laden with trunks and travelling gear, and as she neared the land the lord was detected amongst the passengers looking very ill almost dying. He passed up the little street of the village, scarcely noticing the uncovered heads which saluted him respectfully. Indeed, he scarcely lifted up his eyes, and, as the acute observers remarked, never once turned a glance toward the opposite shore where the castle stood. He had not reached the end of the village when a chase with four horses arrived at the spot. No time was lost in arranging the trunks and portmanteaus, and Lord Glencore sat moodily on a bank listlessly regarding what went forward. At length Craggs came up, and, touching his cap in military fashion, announced all was ready. Lord Glencore arose slowly, and looked languidly around him. His features wore a mingled expression of weariness and anxiety, like one not fully awakened from an oppressive dream. He turned his eyes on the people, who at a respectful distance stood around, and in a voice of peculiar melancholy said, Goodbye. A good journey to you, my lord, and safe back again to us, cried a number together. Eh, what? What was that? cried he suddenly, and the tones were shrill and discordant in which he spoke. A warning gesture from Craggs imposed silence on the crowd, and not a word was uttered. I thought they said something about coming back again, muttered Glencore gloomily. They were wishing you a good journey, my lord, replied Craggs. Oh, that was it, was it? And so saying, with bent down head, he walked feebly forward and entered the carriage. Craggs was speedily on the box, and the next moment they were away. It is no part of our task to dwell on the sage speculations and wise surmises of the village on this event. They had not, it is true, much evidence before them, but they were hardy guessers and there was very little within the limits of possibility which they did not summon to the aid of their imaginations. All, however, were tolerably agreed upon one point, that to leave the place while the young lord was still unable to quit his bed, and too weak to sit up, was unnatural and unfeeling, traits which, after all, they thought not very surprising, since the likes of them lords never cared for anybody. Colonel Harcourt still remained at Glencore, and under his rigid sway the strictest blockade of the coast was maintained, nor was any intercourse whatever permitted with the village. A boat from the castle, meeting another from Linane halfway in the lock, received the letters and whatever other resources the village supplied. All was done with the rigid exactness of a quarantine regulation, and if the mainland had been scourged with plague, stricter measures of exclusion could scarcely have been enforced. In comparison with the present occupant of the castle, the late one was a model of amiability, 
and the village, as is the wont in the case, now discovered a vast number of good qualities in the lord when they had lost him. After a while, however, the guesses, the speculations, and the comparisons all died away, and the castle of Glencore was as much dreamland to their imaginations as, seen across the loch in the dim twilight of an autumn evening, its towers might have appeared to their eyes. It was about a month after Lord Glencore's departure, of a fine, soft evening in summer, Billy Trainer suddenly appeared in the village. Billy was one of a class who, whatever their rank in life, are always what Coleridge would have called noticeable men. He was soon, therefore, surrounded with a knot of eager and inquiring friends, all solicitous to know something of the life he was leading, what they were doing, beyond at the castle. "'It's a mighty quiet, studious kind of life,' said Billy, "'but agrees with me wonderfully, for I may say that until now I was never able to give my Janius fair play. Professional life is the ruin of the student.' and bein' always obliged to be thinkin' of the bags destroyed my taste for letters. A grin of self-approval at his own witticism closed this speech. "'But is it true, Billy, that the Lord is going to break up the house entirely and not come back here?' asked Peter Slevin, the sacristan, whose rank and station warranted his assuming the task of cross-questioner. "'There's various ways of breaking up a house,' said Billy. Ye may do so in a moral sense, or in a physical sense. You may obliterate, or extinguish, or, without going so far, you may simply obfuscate. Do you perceive? Yes, said the sacristan, on whom every eye was now bent, to see if he was able to follow the subtleties that had outwitted the rest. And when I say obfuscate, resumed Billy, I open a question of disputed etymology, because though Lucretius thinks the word obfuscator original, there's many supposes it comes from ob and fucus, the dye the ancients used in their wool as we find in Horace, lana fuco medicata, while Cicero employed it in another sense, and says, facere fucum, which is as much to say humbug in somebody. Do you mind? Begora, he might guess that anyhow,' muttered a shrewd little tailor, with a significance that provoked hearty laughter. "'And now,' continued Billy, with an air of triumph, "'we'll proceed to the next point.' "'You needn't trouble yourself, then,' said Terry Lynch, "'for Peter has gone home.' And so, to the amusement of the meeting, it turned out to be the case. The sacristan had retired from the controversy." "'Come in here to Mrs. Moore's, Billy, and take a glass with us,' said Terry. "'It isn't often we see you in these parts.' "'If the honourable company will graciously vouchsafe and condescend to let me trade them to a half-gallon,' said Billy, "'it will be the proudest event of my terrestrial existence.' The proposition was received with a cordial enthusiasm, flattering to all concerned, and in a few minutes after Billy Trainer sat at the head of a long table in the neat parlour of the griddle, with a company of some fifteen or sixteen very convivially disposed friends around him. "'If I was Caesar or Lucretius or Nebuchadnezzar, I couldn't be prouder,' said Billy as he looked down the board. "'And let moralists talk as they will, there's a beautiful expansion of sentiment.' 
There's a fine genial overflowin' o' the heart in gatherings like this, where we mingle our feelings and our philosophy, our love and our learning walk hand in hand like brothers. Pass the spirits, Mr. Shea. If we look to the ancient writers, what do we see? Lemons! Bring in some lemons, Mickey! What do we see, I say, but the very highest enjoyment of the heathen gods was? Hot water! Why won't they send in more hot water? Begore, if I as a heathen god, it put a little whiskey in it, muttered Terry dryly. Where was I? asked Billy, a little disconcerted by this sally and the laugh it excited. I was expatiating upon celestial convivialities, the nodis conneke deum. Them elegant hospitalities where wisdom was moistened with nectar, and wit washed down with ambrosia. It is not by course to be expected, continued he modestly, that we mere mortals can compete with them elegant refections. But as Ovid says, we can at least diem hucundem decipere. The unknown tongue had now restored to Billy all the reverence and respect of his auditory, and he continued to expatiate very eloquently on the wholesome advantages to be derived from convivial intercourse, both amongst gods and men, rather slyly intimating that either on the score of the fluids or the conversation his own leanings lay toward the humanities. "'For, after all,' said he, "'Tis our own wakeness is often the source of our most refined enjoyments. No, Mrs. Cassidy, you needn't be blushing. I'm considering my subject in a high ethnological and metaphysical sense. Mrs. Cassidy's confusion and the mirth it excited here interrupted the orator. The meetin' is never tired of hearing you, Billy, said Terry Lynch. But if it was pleasing to ye to give us a song, we'd enjoy it greatly. Ah, said Billy with a sigh. I've taken my part and kiss with the muses, non mihi licet in crepare digitis liram. No more to feel poetic fire, no more to touch the sound in lyre, but wiser courses to begin, I now forsake my violin. An honest burst of regret and sorrow broke from the assembly, who eagerly pressed for an explanation of this calamitous change. The thing is, said Billy, if a man is a creature of mere leisure and amusement, the fine arts, and by the fine arts I mean music, painting, and the ladies, is an elegant and very refined subject of cultivation. But when you raise your cerebral faculties to grander and loftier considerations, to explore the difficult regions of polemic or political truth, to investigate the subtleties of the schools, and penetrate the mysteries of science, then take my word for it, the fine arts is just snares a divil more than snares, and whether it is soft sounds seduces you, or elegant tints, or the union of both, women I mean, you'll never arrive at anything great or triumphant until you wane yourself from the likes of them vanities. Look at the heathen mythology. Consider for a moment who is the chap that represents music. A lame blackguard with an ugly face they call Pan. Aye, indeed, Pan! And if you wanted to see what respect they had for the art, it's easy enough to guess when this creature represents it, and as to paint and on my conscience they haven't a god at all that ever took to the brush. Pass up the spirits, Mickey, said he, somewhat blown and out of breath by this effort. Maybe, said he, I'm wearing you. No, 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 loudly responded the meeting. 
"'Maybe I'm imposing too much of personal details on the house,' added he pompously. "'Not at all, never a bit,' cried the company. "'Because,' resumed he slowly, "'if I did so, I'd at least have the excuse of saying, like the great pit, "'these may be my last words from this place.' An unfeigned murmur of sorrow ran through the meeting, and he resumed, "'Ay, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Trainer is taking his farewell benefit. He's not humbuggin'. I'm not like them chaps that's always positively goin' but stays on at the unanimous request of the whole world. No, I'm really going to leave you.' "'What for? Where to, Billy?' broke from a number of voices together. "'I'll tell ye,' said he at least so far as i can tell because it wouldn't be right nor decent to print the whole of the papers for the house as they say in parliament i'm going abroad with the young lord we're going to improve our minds and cultivate our janiuses by study and foreign travel we are first to settle in germany where we are to enter university and commence a course of modern tongues french swedish and spanish imbibing at the same time a smattering of science such as chemistry conchology and the use of the globes oh dear oh dear murmured the meeting in wonder and admiration i'm not going to say that we'll neglect mechanics metaphysics and astrology for we mean to be cosmonopolists in knowledge as for myself ladies and gentlemen it's a proud day that sees me standin here to say these words i that was ragged without a shoe to my foot without breeches never mind i was as the poet says nudus numis ac vestimentis i haven't a sixpence in my pack i haven't small clothes to my back carrying the bag many a weary mile through sleet and snow for six pounds tin per annum and no pinchin for wounds nor superannuation and now i'm to be it isn't easy to say what to the young lord a species of humble companion not many yay do you mind nothing manual what the latins called a famulus which was quite a different thing from a service the former being a kind of domestic adviser a deputy assistant monitor general as a body might say there now if i discoursed for a month i couldn't tell you more about myself and my future prospects i own to you that i'm proud of my good luck and i wouldn't exchange it to be emperor of jamaica or king of the bahamia islands if we've been a prolix in our office of reporter to billy trainer our excuse is that his discourse will have contributed so far to the reader's enlightenment as to save us the task of recapitulation at the same time it is but justice to the accomplished orator that we should say we have given but the most meagre outline of an address which to use the newspaper phrase occupied three hours in the delivery the truth was billy was in vain the listeners were patient the punch strong nor is it every speaker who has the good fortune of such happy accessories. End of chapter 18